Okay, Ephesians chapter 2, are you there? Let's stand and read. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ, that in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by the one spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows together into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. As I stated in the beginning of our study of this epistle to the Ephesians, in the first three chapters, the apostle is magnifying the love and the grace of God. Uh, Paul's desire is that we we would ultimately faithfully worship and and serve the Lord, but he knows that that's going to take place in its best sense and in its truest form if we first have a strong foundation in God's love for us. And so he spends the first three chapters, as we pointed out, reminding us of the fact that it was nothing other than God's deep, deep love that moved him to save us with an eternal foundation, uh, eternal salvation. He wants us to get that. He wants us to understand that 
All of this is rooted in God's love for us. So as we just quickly look back over the first chapter, we see he's highlighting the love of God all the way through. It was because of God's great love that he chose us in Christ to be holy and blameless before him. It was because of his love that he redeemed us through the blood of Christ and gave us an eternal inheritance. It was because of his love that he sealed us with the Holy Spirit, guaranteeing our ultimate acquiring of that eternal inheritance. So that's what he's been doing in the first chapter. Now, as he comes to the second chapter, he essentially does the same thing. Here in the second chapter, he's magnifying the grace of God, but he does it in a bit of a different way. In the first chapter, he's focusing in on what God has done. And he he does that as well in the second chapter. But what he does in the second chapter is he, he shows us what God has done in light of what our true condition really was. So he, in, in the second chapter here, he's making a contrast and he's showing us our salvation from the standpoint of our hopeless, helpless condition of having been dead in trespasses and sins. It's as though Paul is an artist painting a picture of our salvation and he starts with a dark blackened canvas. That's our previous state. So he starts with this dark blackened canvas, but then he moves on to the bright and glorious hues that will show the great contrast of where we came from in our trespasses and sins to where we are now seated in the heavenly places in Christ. So, so really in the second chapter, Paul shows us that we have gone from the lowest pit to the highest peak. And so I've entitled the message today from the pit to the pinnacle, because that's what's happened. We have gone from the lowest possible place, dead in trespasses and sins. And we have now been elevated to the highest possible place. Remember, Christ is the one who's seated there upon the throne. He's the king of the universe. And Paul says that we have now been seated with him in the heavenly places. And so the way I want to do this overview is I want to take a look at where we were and then look at where we are, and then see the application of those things uh, for us. So where were we? Well, as I said, we were in the pit, the lowest part of the pit. Our former hopeless, helpless condition is what Paul explains in this second chapter, beginning with dead in trespasses and sins. Doesn't get any worse than that. We're dead in trespasses and sins. Uh, The trespasses and sins, those are the things that have caused us to be dead. And what, what Paul's referring to here is spiritual death. We're spiritually dead. We're we're separated from God. We're separated from the life of God. And this is our natural condition. Maybe you've heard the term original sin. We're born into sin. And having original sin or have or, or being born into sin means that we're born into a state of separation from God because of the sin. So that's where where we are, all of us, naturally, dead in our trespasses and sins. 
I might have heard of a God, but I don't know him. I might have had somebody tell me that God speaks to him, but he doesn't speak to me. I don't hear anything. Because as far as I'm concerned, I'm like a dead person. Dead person doesn't see or hear or know or feel. And, and that's how we are by nature in uh, reference to God. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. And then he says that we are walking according to the course of this world. And then he adds this, according to the prince of the power of the air. So not only are we dead in our trespasses and sins, which is terrible, but he says that we're also under the authority of the devil. And not simply under the authority of the devil, but we are in league with the devil. So we're under his dominion. We're under his authority. He has uh, power over our lives. But then we yield ourselves to him. We, we succumb to his temptations. We follow his philosophy of life and so forth. So we're, we're under his authority. The whole world lies in the grasp of the evil one, John tells us in his epistle. But yet we're also in league with him. So dead in trespasses and sins, under the authority and, uh, of the devil and in league with him. And then he says that we are children of wrath. We are children of wrath. We are children who are destined toward judgment ultimately, and we live under a degree of judgment presently. So this is our natural condition. And I want you to notice that Paul includes himself. Now, speaking even as a Jew, he's including himself there. He says that we are, and, and we're by nature, he's talking to them Gentiles, you were by nature children of wrath, just as others. So what he wants us to understand is this is the, this is the condition of every single person that's ever lived. There's nobody that's in any different position than this. We're all exactly in the same place. But he goes on, children of wrath, and he says, we're aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. So again, speaking to Gentiles at that time, Israel were God's covenant people. The Gentiles had not been part of that. They were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. To apply it in principle today, we would say that a person is alienated from the commonwealth of the church, God's people. Just like Israel was God's ancient people, the church is today God's uh, people currently. So it's uh, the person who's not in Christ, a person who's in their natural state is alienated from the commonwealth of the church or the common wealth that's shared amongst God's people. And then he says, strangers of the covenants of promise. Strangers from the covenants of promise. God's given all kinds of promises. He's promised to bless. He's promised to guide. He's promised to provide. He's promised to protect. He's promised to fill us with joy and peace and, and uh, hope and purpose and all of those things. But for those outside, they're strangers from the covenants of promise. They, they have no actual experience of them. And then he says, having no hope. Boy, what a statement, having no hope. The Gentiles had no hope. And at the time that Jesus came into the world and the, the, the apostles then would go out and preach, they went out to a hopeless world. What hope was there in the Roman world? They believed in idols, false gods, some of the more 
intellectual among them renounced the gods and just embraced some form of philosophy, but it was generally fatalistic, and it was, it was a hopeless culture that the apostles went out into. What was there to hope for? What, was, uh, what, what, what could come along and really improve, not just a person's life at the time, but, but what about the future? There was no concept of a, of a good and a wonderful, like the biblical description of, a, of an afterlife, all kinds of different views of that, but there was absolute uncertainty. So the world was generally in a state of no hope like it is today. Many people today, what are people hoping in today? What is there to hope in? At one time, we might have been able to hope in our government institutions, We might have been able to hope in progress and things like that, but it just seems that more and more we're finding that where we were putting our hope, it was a false hope. Those people are failing us. They're letting us down. What hope do we have of the future, not just in this life, but what about in the next life? But then the final thing he says is without God in the world. That's the big problem with the unbeliever. The unbeliever is without God. They live in a world without God. And because they live in a world without God, they don't know peace. They don't know joy. They don't have any lasting contentment and they don't have any real confidence about what happens afterward. There's there's no idea. You know, we've talked about this many times before and I read too many atheist things, so I end up talking about atheists too much. But uh, nevertheless, you know, the atheists are, you know, they're always on their rant against people who believe in God and Christians and so forth. But, you know, here's the question that I have for the atheist. Um, What's your plan? Okay, you don't like God's plan? Uh, Could you give us a plan, something that is comparable to it or something that is better than it? And, And the reality is the honest atheists, they don't have a plan, They don't have any answers. At the end of the day, they just say, well, you know what? There aren't any answers and there is no plan. And we're just, it's a cold, cruel world and you just got to get used to it and you're going to die and disappear and it'll all be over. So that's it. Um, I, I don't really think that's much of an alternative, quite honestly. But that's where you go. Without God in the world, there is no hope. This is where we were Some of you are still there, but this is where every single person is. And I emphasize that, and Paul emphasizes it here, because sometimes what we do is we make the mistake of thinking, well, yes, I could see that some people would be in a place like that, but, you know, that's not where I am. I'm a good person. I do my best to be as kind and loving to people and as generous, and and I'm really not like this. I'm not... Uh, this kind of a person who's under the authority of the devil or dead in trespasses and sins, that's not me. Well, it is. It's everybody. It's all of us. There, there's no middle position. There's, there's one place or the other. You're either dead in your trespasses and sins or you're alive in Christ. And there's nothing in the middle. Now, we, we mistakenly think that there's a middle ground because we, we judge people by what we see. And we look at people and we say, well, that person doesn't, they don't look like they're dead in trespasses and sins. They look like they're doing pretty good. 
Oh, they don't look like they're under the authority of the devil. They seem to be actually looking fine. But it's because we're looking at it from a very limited point of view. You see, man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And when God looks down and sees the hearts of men, he sees us all in the exact same position, dead in trespasses and sins, walking according to the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, and on and on right down the list here. So this is where we were. This is where many still are. But here's the wonderful thing. And of course, this is the gospel that Paul is emphasizing. God has taken us who were there And for reasons all of his own and because of his great love, not because of any spark of goodness in us or anything like that, but because of his great love, he has made us alive together in Christ, starting with that. That's where we start. God looks at humanity, dead in trespasses and sins, and he has mercy on us. Why does he do it? It's simply because of his love. He looked upon us with pity rather than rightfully looking upon us with disdain and anger and uh, an intention to judge, he looked upon us with pity. He had mercy on us. And so we who were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive in Christ. You know, every person, in order to come to Christ, has to have to a certain degree, the Spirit of God move upon their lives. We'll talk much more about this as we go into our future studies. But there's no person that left to themselves just one day decides, you know, I'm dead in my trespasses and sins. I need to be made alive in Christ. Nobody does that on their own. A person doesn't even recognize their condition until the Holy Spirit begins to do his work of convicting us. So we see, you know, we we sometimes talk about salvation being all of God. Well, of course, there's a cooperative element to it. We have to agree with God in order to be saved. But the fact that there is salvation, the fact that there's even an offer of salvation is rooted purely in God. God decided to have mercy and he gave every single person uh, enough of uh, a liberty by his spirit to bring them to the place of being able to recognize that they need a savior. So he did it, made us alive. We've been made alive. And then Paul, as we just go down the list here, says that he's, we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. So we were afar off, but now we've been brought near. We've been brought close to God. And of course, anybody who has become a Christian, you know that this is exactly what's happened. You've been made alive. You were dead. I can remember that. I can think back and I remember so clearly being dead in my trespasses and sins. But there came that moment where the new life came and everything changed. It was like somebody turned on the light switch. And prior to that, I was far away from God, but suddenly I was brought near to God. That's what happens to us. We, we are brought near. And then Paul goes on. He says that we have access by the Spirit to the Father. So we're given access. We're, previously, we were barred from the presence of God. 
You know, we hear people say sometimes, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give God a piece of my mind someday. If there is a God, I'm going to tell him a thing or two when I see him. No, you're not. <laughs> you, you can't even get into his presence. You don't have access. He's not available to you. You're banished from his presence because of sin. But for those that he's made alive, he's now brought us near to himself. And so we've been, we've been brought near and we've been given this access by the spirit. And I want you to notice that Paul uses the word father here. He could have easily said we have access by the one spirit to God, but instead he says father because he's emphasizing the relational thing that has occurred now. So now we're in a relationship. God is not just God, the almighty, all-powerful um, creator. God is now our father. And there's an intimacy that's associated with that very terminology. So we have access by the spirit to the father and we have become fellow citizens with the saints. We've been made fellow citizens. We've been brought into this kingdom and we've become citizens. Now, in the ancient world especially, especially in the Greek and the Roman world, being a citizen was a huge thing. Maybe you remember in um, the book of Acts, there was an occasion where, where Paul was taken and, and he, was be- he was being beaten and he, well, actually, they were threatening to beat him. And right before they started to, Paul asked them this question. He says, is it lawful to beat a Roman citizen who is uncondemned? And the, the man that was about to beat him stopped and went to his superior and said, hey, th- this guy's a Roman citizen. And so the official comes to Paul and he says, I hear you're a Roman citizen. It was unlawful to beat a Roman citizen without having first tried him. And he says, I hear you're a Roman citizen. Is that true? And Paul says, yes, it's true. And the man says, with a great sum of money, I purchased my citizenship. And Paul said, I was born a citizen. So you see, you, you could have lived in that Roman world and functioned in it to a large degree, but not had citizenship. And so you would have been deprived of a lot of things. The citizen had a ton of privileges that the non-citizen didn't have. And of course, that's still true in nations today. And, uh, but, but it was more pronounced uh, even then. So what is Paul saying? He's saying that we have become fellow citizens with the saints. So we've been brought right in. We've got the citizenship. We've got the privileges now. We've got that position. You know, when you read back in the pages of your Bible and you read about Abraham and, and the covenant that God made with him. And you read about Moses and the covenant there and you go on with David and so forth all the way through and you come to the New Testament, all that. And, and it's this kingdom that, that's being uh, revealed to us through this process. Here's what the apostle is wanting us to know, that we're now citizens of that kingdom. We've been brought in. We're part of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God There's two kingdoms today. There's the kingdom of death and darkness. There's the kingdom of light and life. 
And if you have been made alive in Christ, then you're a citizen of the kingdom of light and life. Now, the kingdom of death and darkness, its days are numbered. There's a day when that kingdom is going to be forever overthrown, conquered, destroyed. But the kingdom of light and life, the kingdom of Christ, it's gonna go on forever. And you who have put your trust in Christ, we who have been made alive in Christ, we are now fellow citizens with the saints. And then he says, and also members of the household of God. We become part of the family. That's the amazing thing. We've been brought in, we've been adopted, brought into the family. So when you read your Bible and you read about those people that I just mentioned, next time you come across Abraham or Moses or whoever, I want you to think in these terms. These are your ancestors. These are the people that we're connected to. We're all part of the same big family that goes back to the very dawn of time and extends all the way into eternity. We're part of this universal family of God. What a privilege. What an amazing thing. One of the things that I find so wonderful in my own life experience is uh, just having been able to, to travel to different places, different cultures, and meet people of, of different ethnicities and nationalities and so forth, and, and to be able to build relationships with people from all different places around the world. There's something about that to me that's so wonderful. I just absolutely love it. And I've had so many experiences where I might go somewhere and I'll meet a brother or a sister in Christ. I'll spend two or three days with them and that will form a lifelong friendship. Or, it, you know, after two or three days, you feel like I've known this person for 20 years. This person's my brother. This person's my sister. Well, the reality is they are. That's what it is. We've been brought in, into the household of God. We've been made members of his family. Now, this is huge. Today, so many people are looking because of the breakdown of the family in our culture. So many people are looking for family. So many people want to be accepted. They want to belong to something. You know, lots of young people get drawn into the gang life, not because they want to become criminals. They, They get drawn into the gang life because they feel accepted. They feel loved. They feel like, you know, these are my people. As they say, these are my homies. Now, these are the people that really care about me. And, and it's, that, it's that kind of a connection that people are looking for. So they get drawn into these things. I was talking to a friend earlier today, and he's a, he rides a bike, and they've got a little group of guys that go out riding their Harleys and stuff. And they're, they're believers, and they end up going and hanging out with some of the other bike gangs. And, uh, you know, he was saying, man... You know, we go in there and they grab us and hug us. And these guys aren't Christians and a lot of them are criminals and stuff. But he, he was just saying, he heard what I said and he said, you know, it's so true. He said, they, the, it's the, like the family thing that, that draws you in. I was talking to a young person recently who had been sucked up into the gay lifestyle and it was the exact same thing. They said, you know, the gay community, man, they love you. They accept you. They say, come on in. We're your people. We want to take care of you. We want to help you. We want to protect you. God's got something way better than those things. And it's the family of God that we've been brought into. But, but you know, it's important that practically we, we realize that too. 
Because even though we're members of the household of God, even though we're all members of the same family, sometimes we can be so disconnected from one another. Sometimes we, we can live as though we don't even have that kind of a relationship with each other. And so we have to make uh, intentional steps to build those bonds, to, to strengthen the relationships that are there, to develop them. And some of the things that we're doing here at the church these days, that's the very in, uh, intent uh, behind why we're doing what we're doing. We want to build the, the fellowship so people don't have to go off to a gang or don't have to go off to some other community to find acceptance or uh, fulfillment. They know that, no, this is where it is. It's here in the household of God. So this is what God has done. He's taken us from the pit to the pinnacle. He's taken us from dead in trespasses and sins. He's made us alive in Christ. He's taken us out from under the authority of Satan, and he's brought us under his authority. We're no longer the children of wrath, but now we are the children of of God and, and his love rather than his wrath is set upon us. We're no longer alienated. We're no longer strangers, but we're fellow citizens and members. We're no longer without hope. We're no longer without God. We now know God through Jesus Christ. So this is the emphasis here in the second chapter. And Paul then, he kind of finalizes things here with telling us that we have become a dwelling place for the Spirit, a holy temple in the Lord. So we are that place where the Spirit dwells. We are that collectively, and we are that individually. We are both uh, individually the temple of the Holy Spirit, but we as God's people congregationally, we are in the larger sense the, the dwelling place of God. So we've gone from being completely excluded from the things of God to becoming the center of the very life of God. That, it, it's an absolutely amazing transition that's taken place. And it's all happened through God's love and grace. Now, practically, one of the primary reasons that Paul is telling us what he's telling us is because, as I said earlier, in the end, Paul is wanting us to be true worshipers of God. He's wanting us to be obedient children. He's wanting us to be genuine seekers and followers of the Lord. And he knows, and the Spirit, of course, knows who's prompting him, that the best way that that happens is through understanding God's love. God wants us to worship him, but he doesn't want to, he's not going to make us worship him. What kind of worship is that? God wants us to love him, but he's not going to force us to love him. So what does he do? He loves us more than we could ever imagine. And of course, the natural response, the proper reciprocation would be to love him back. And that's the point that Paul is really getting at here as he expounds the grace of God, that we would so appreciate God's grace, that we would so uh, thank him for all that he's done for us that we couldn't help but just completely love him with everything in us. How could we do anything less 
with such great love, with the one who took us from, from death and our trespasses and sins and made us alive just simply because of his love, how could we do anything less? But sometimes what happens to us is our hearts get hard and we forget. It's a good thing to occasionally go back and remember the pit that God pulled you out of. Because, you know, after you're out of it for a while, you can kind of, uh, you can kind of lose sight of how bad it really was. And sometimes you can even foolishly look back and think, well, you know, I don't know, maybe it wasn't that bad back then. Maybe I ought to go back and check it out again. The Israelites did that. Remember, they were in Egypt and they were under the oppression of the Egyptians and they were the slaves and they served Pharaoh with rigor and hard bondage and they cried out to God. And then the Lord sent them a deliverer. He sent them Moses. And they were delivered after the process that you're familiar with, the the plagues and so forth. They were delivered and then they were taken out into the desert on their way to the promised land and things weren't as well as they had expected them to be initially. And so they started longing in their hearts to be back in Egypt. They started thinking, oh, it wasn't, Egypt wasn't that bad after all. You know, the food was pretty good back in Egypt. Moses, why did you bring us out here and feed us this manna? And Moses, why did you bring us out here where there's no water? There was lots of water in Egypt. And why did you bring us out here to die because there were no graves in Egypt? And they quickly forgot how miserable their lives were. And and sometimes we can do that. And so rather than being constantly thankful and reminded over and over again of God's goodness, which prompts us to praise and to worship him, which prompts us to give ourselves entirely over to loving and serving him, we start thinking about the past and we get delusional and we think, oh, you know, it really wasn't that bad. No, it was, it was worse than you remember. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were going according to the course of this world. You were under the dominion of Satan. And he's a hard taskmaster. Don't go back there. Don't even think about going back there. God wants to take you forward. Sure, we go through challenging seasons. We go through wildernesses at times. We go through deserts. We go through testings. But no testing is worth turning back from. We want to stay the course and enter into the fullness of all that God intends for those that he makes alive in Christ. So as we close this morning... Here's what it comes down to. Here's the question. Are you in the pit of sin and death or are you seated in the heavenly places in Christ? Remember, as I said, there really is no middle position. You're either one place or the other. You're either a member of the household of God, a child of God, or you're a child of wrath. You're either far off or you've been brought close to God. What is the differentiating factor? It's the blood of Christ. It's the blood of Christ. What have you done with the blood of Christ? And when I say the blood of Christ, I'm talking about the sacrifice of Christ. I'm talking about the cross. I'm talking about what Jesus did. Jesus came and did this, but he expects a response from us. 
And what we have to do, in essence, is we have to take that blood that he shed and we have to make it applicable to ourselves. God does not do that part for us. He did everything else, but now we're the ones that are responsible to appropriate it is the word. I I make it my own. And that's the difference between dead in trespasses and sins and alive in Christ. That's the difference between being under the dominion of Satan and being um, under the goodness of a loving heavenly father. That's the difference between being part of God's family or being a child of wrath. It's the difference between being near to God or far from God. It all comes down to that personal embrace of the blood of Christ by receiving Christ himself. And I know that many of you have done that, but yet perhaps there are a few of you today that haven't and I want to give you the opportunity to do that today. God wants to take you out of the pit that you're in and he wants to put you, he, he wants to put you there with Christ in the heavenly places. In, in the Psalms, there's a picture that's given a few times over and it's the picture of what God does. It says that he takes the beggar from the dung heap Dung is an old English word for, um, well, you can guess what it's for, right? (laughs) The rubbish heap. He takes the beggar out of the rubbish heap and he sets him upon the throne of princes. That's what God's in the business of doing. Taking people from the pit and setting them right there at the tip of the peak with himself. That's what he does. That's what he extends. That's what he is offering to us. We just receive it. So if you haven't done that, today's the day you can do that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the reminder that your word gives us of, Lord, both our natural condition and of your grace and goodness and what you have done and intend to do about it. And so, Lord, for those of us that have become um, fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Lord, may we never forget where we came from and may we hold firmly to this place that you brought us to with thankful hearts, with appreciation and with just a yieldedness of ourselves to you. And Lord, if there's any today that have yet to come out of the pit. They're still there living in that pit of trespasses and sins. They're still there under the dominion of the the taskmaster, Satan. And their lives are being ground to powder. Lord, help them today to cry out to you that you might make them alive in Christ. Lord, that you might grant to them all of the blessings that we read about here in the text today. So work in hearts, I pray. And while we're praying today and eyes are closed, heads are bowed, if you, if you wanna do that, if you want to transition out of the pit, you wanna be made alive, you recognize that you're dead in your trespasses and sins. God's shown that to you, but you want to you make that change that he's offering to you through his love. 
You can do that right now by opening your heart to Christ. If you'd like to do that, if that's you, you've never done that before, I want you just to slip your hand up and I want to pray for you. We're going to help you say a prayer. God bless you. We're going to help you say a prayer that, that will invite Christ to come in. And he'll do for you all the things that I've just been telling you about. Anyone else, just slip your hand up if that's you. So Lord, we thank you for those that have raised their hand today and we pray that you would meet them. And for those of you that did that, just say this little prayer. Lord Jesus, I confess that I'm a sinner. I believe that you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I pray you'd forgive me and come into my life and make me a child of God. I thank you for what you've done and what you're going to do. And Lord, we pray for them now that you would just solidify this work of grace in hearts today, in their hearts. And Lord, for us who know you already, again, Lord, help us to remember how amazing your grace has been toward us and help us to keep moving forward to experience all that you have for us in the spirit as we march toward heaven, as we march toward our our eternal destiny with you. Guide us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.